Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Admirable goal. But how will they roll it out? It has taken me about two years to go from 30 schools to 500 schools, so I think it would be reasonable to say that over the next four years uh, that all children in primary schools should get a hot school meal. As the eviction ban lapses this weekend, the Simon community says it's not too late for a U-turn. And later, the latest on the allegations of abuse in the Defence Forces, Biden's official visit confirmed, and the open letter citing AI as a risk to society. We discussed the other big stories of the week. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, Minister for Social Protection Heather Humphreys has announced a plan to introduce a free hot school meal every day for all primary and post-primary pupils by 2030. A worthy ambition, but how will it be implemented? Well, here to discuss is Fianna Fáil Senator Lorraine Clifford-Lee, Executive Director of the Simon Community of Ireland, Wayne Stanley, Special Correspondent for the Irish Examiner and presenter of the eponymous podcast, Mick Clifford and journalist Valerie Cox. And via Skype tonight, we're joined by chef and food strategist Ashling Larkin. You're all very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight. Um, Wayne, I want to come to you first on, on this tonight because this announcement from government on providing these free hot school meals initially to all DESH schools um, in September and then to roll it out nationally over a number of years, mind you, um, you at Simon Community are no doubt well aware of the struggles facing people who are struggling to put food on the table. Um, do you see this as a very welcome and progressive news to see this, this national, across-the-board rollout? We do, absolutely. I mean, the, the research tells us that children who get a hot meal in school do better. In fact, uh, the Children's Rights Alliance have been campaigning for this for a long time now, and we're a member of the Children's Rights Alliance. Uh, I suppose we come at it particularly through the lens of homelessness, and we know that families in hotels, uh, families in B&Bs, they... they they struggle to provide nutritious food to their children and having that support in schools, I think, is really important. Uh, we'd like to see the rollout, obviously, accelerated as, as fast as possible because I think people forget that, you know, it's, it, it's not just day schools. Um, it is across the country that, that people need the support. And, in fact, uh, research by the, uh, the, cited by the Children's Rights Alliance would say that particularly small children, equate hot food with affection and love. So really, children do do better if they get their that hot meal in school, and we do think it's really important. It's also really important in the universality of it and getting there that we start to think about these things, I'd equate it along with the housing, that we stop thinking about these things in monetary senses, but actually as part of our social and economic infrastructure. That these think, are basics, yeah, shelter, these are, these are rights. Th these are the things that we need to have successful... Uh, futures for our children and, you know, uh, housing and 
school meals, things like this, uh, it, that kind of rolling them out and universality of it, I think is really important. Uh, and Wayne, um, you know you were talking about people who are in emergency accommodation or in situations um, or really hard pressed. Um, and I, I don't think everyone always has an idea. Well, they, they clearly don't about what happens in people's own private homes and what happens and are, are, are shocked and surprised to hear that a child may not get a hot meal that day if they're not going to get it in school. Is that what you're seeing, that there are children right now in Ireland who, who won't have a hot meal every day? Absolutely. I mean, I think we know, and there, there's some really good research done by my colleagues in, in Focus Ireland, if I, can, if I can give them credit, they, they did a really interesting piece where they, they followed families who were, and the efforts that they were going to, to make sure that their children got decent food. And it, it is it both what you would expect of a parent, but also extraordinary in the circumstances that they have to go to. But it's really difficult to achieve that. And if they had that extra support in the schools, I think it really would have a really positive impact on the children. And a guaranteed, a guaranteed hot meal for a child. Absolutely. OK, I want to bring Ashling Larkin in here. Um, Ashling, this is your area of expertise. You're, you're a food educator. Uh, and someone who's looked into the whole hot meal scheme or, or school dinners as such that we don't really have a culture of here in Ireland. Um, and I suppose taking this plan to a reality across the board... Um, how does it work and, and where else have you seen it in operation and working very well? Yeah, I suppose like in the world globally, there's two countries. So we have Finland and Sweden who are the two countries who offer free hot school meals across the world. Um, so to, for us by 2030 to be one of those countries to be doing that is amazing. How it works, it works really successfully. Finland have been doing it since 1948, over 70 years. They started it after the war where they saw there was a need, I suppose, and to, to, to peel malnutrition and also for equality within society because they wanted to get women back into the workforce. And when you look in Finland, so I spent nine months commuting over and back to Helsinki working on food education programs. I lived in Finnish homes. I visited Finnish schools. I was with the councillor for food education, the dean of the universities. And their food education system in school is their culture. It's the core of the culture. They are so proud as a nation that they give school meals, hot school meals every single day to their children. Um, it works very simply, to be honest. It's not fancy. It's not extravagant. It's simple, basic, nutrient-dense foods. It's foods that's linked to their heritage and their culture, prepared simply, and everybody joins in. So everybody from the teachers to the students have a rota. They all chip in. It's part of their curriculum. It's just part and parcel. And everybody sits together. Everybody eats a meal together. So not only are you getting the nutrition, the comfort from the hot meal, but you're also getting that socialization, that connection with everybody else. So it really can work very well. Ashing, I suppose from an infrastructure uh, point of view, you know, not every school has, there may be a staff canteen, but they wouldn't have big kitchens or any of that sort of thing. In terms of getting our, our house in order to deliver this as a plan, is there a lot um, required, you know, logistically for this, for this to work? And I guess what, what, the, what challenges are there um, for the state in doing it? Look, I suppose systems are already in place in a lot of the DESH schools. A lot of the suppliers, they have their frameworks in place. They know what they're doing. It's a matter of rolling it out and scaling it up. There are, I suppose, if we're going to do it on a national scale, there are things that should be considered from the very beginning. 
things like looking now, I mean, from when we started a pilot program 20 years ago to where we are now, things like sustainability is really important. Things like cultural food, you know, diversity and inclusion of the types of food that we're offering. Those kind of things need to be looked at. Even things like, you know, sustainable packaging, compostable packaging, how schools, parents, you know, boards, boards of management are all going to come together and think, okay, you know, even something as simple as how is the food delivered to the school? Where do we, you know, what containers does it come in? Are these going to be reusable? Are they going to be compostable? You're looking at things like that. From a financial perspective, I suppose, there's been an increase of 10% um, to suppliers to, to roll this out. So it's gone from €2.90 to 3.20 per hot meal. Um, and that's going to be backdated to January 2023 when the rollout happens. That's marginal at the moment for the suppliers. And actually, some of the suppliers have even had to pull out of schools so far this year because it wasn't feasible for them to actually, you know, run it at the cost and at the money they were getting. So I think really being creative about how we put how together menus for schools. Yeah. All right. OK, let's um, bring our, our, the rest of our panel in here. And Lorraine Clifford Lee, it sounds like really ambitious, but a lot of work and a lot of thought and a lot of planning has to go into all of this. Um, and just even thinking about, you know, the costs and I guess the food standards and how you get all of that right. You know, are you confident that that can kind of be achieved within these timeframes that we're talking about? Because we're talking about hot, hot meals come September in all Desh schools. And that's before you thinking about bringing it on as a kind of a national infrastructure, something that's permanently in place in every school. Absolutely. Well, there it's in 500 schools at present. It's going to be in 1,000 schools. That's the number of deaf schools in the country. So it's a doubling of what's happening at the moment. And I suppose it's been a pilot project for a number of years. So all the learnings have been taken from that and it can be implemented and it's just a matter of scaling up. It's a really, really positive development. I've gotten really good feedback from everybody today and listening to Ashling there, like it's a no-brainer. It's good for the children. It's good for families. It's good for society. And the report actually highlights the really positive impact that uh, the, the free school uh, hot meals had on the physical and mental health of the children and also on concentration levels and school attendances. So I think it's an amazing day for children in and Ireland. I, I suppose within the costs, have you taken into account what suppliers may say, yeah, that's grand, you want us to, to, to produce really nutritious, good hot meals in a sustainable way, but that's going to cost money. Yeah, and the fund is there and the rates that are paid to the providers uh, have been increased. And I suppose the department are going to have an ongoing dialogue with the suppliers because this is something we're really committed to as a government. And it's one of many steps that we're putting in place to, to lower costs. So you're confident that we will be looking back. Um, we will be looking back twen in 2030. Now it is time to get that in place and that yeah. every child in every school across the country will have a hot meal. It's going to be implemented uh, incrementally mm -hmm. over the next couple of years. So I think by then it'll definitely be rolled out and actually it's it's hoped that it should be in place even before that. So All it's right. really, really positive. Um, I suppose what this discussion has also brought up, Mick, is um, the idea that if every child gets a hot lunch and it's not just children whose parents struggle financially to feed them, um, are you in favour of that approach? Well, up to a point, Claire. I mean, when you say not just people who, who, who struggle, I mean, if one does it, for example, in DESH schools, you're not differentiating between children within the school environment. And I'd absolutely be in favour of that and absolutely in favour of hot meals for all DESH schools in the country. But in terms of the complete universality for all schools, I would just 
if we're keeping told about there are limited resources, I would prefer to see education budgets going towards other elements of education disadvantage rather than having a universal uh, approach to this, for instance, because there are so many ways that particularly people who come from desk schools are disadvantaged. So mm. if we're talking about limited... But then, as you said, there's kids in desk schools that are, aren't from, you know, a disadvantaged background. Yeah. Um, and, and likewise... Exactly. And, and that you know, the... I didn't actually... And I, didn't re I don't really get the sense of... I was saying this as a parent, that schools are so streamed in that way. No. So you have the national school down the road and you're going to have kids, you know, with parents struggling to put food on the table for their children. Very likely. And, but... and are we going to... Uh, would you like to see a situation in that instance that that child either doesn't get a meal or does, but they're there on their own getting the dinner? Well, what I'd like to see a situation is that you roll it all out for desh schools. And there are other elements of education disadvantage you concentrate on. And when you've all that done, then do it universally. Yes, there may well be a small number of students in non-desh schools who perhaps are struggling. And there may be a scenario that the odd person falls through the cracks. That may be mm. the case. But I'm just wondering about the overall context. If you have limited resources, to my mind, you tackle education disadvantage in all its guises before moving on to... Uni Universality is a great idea, but we do it in bits and bobs here and there in various aspects we do it. of society. We do it in a big way when it comes to child benefit. Val, what's, what's your yeah. take on it? No, we absolutely have to include all children in this because, you know, let's look at it. Kids who are not in DESH schools, we don't know what their background is. They could be neglected. The family could be desperately poor. And you know something interesting? We did this back in the 1950s. I remember being in national school in the 1950s and the teacher would come in with a list of the children that were regarded as poor children. And they were given a bottle of milk, a glass bottle of milk and a sandwich every day. And they were singled out. Now, you can't possibly have that, but I think it is an absolutely wonderful idea. I mean, at the moment, the breakfast clubs in various schools have been very successful. And down in the Caption Day Centre, they're feeding kids every mm. morning. So this is a huge improvement. Grant, I, I, Wayne, just to get you on this point of this universal versus targeted, because we've spoken about this time and again when it comes to cost of living measures that are introduced, say, the energy credit and all that sort of thing. And, and groups such as yourselves have said, please make these make these things targeted so yeah. that people who really need them get them and get them in abundance. Yeah. Um, you, you believe differently when it comes to yeah, the idea I, I, of I think we here. treat children differently. I think it's back to that infrastructure argument. Uh, I, I take uh, Mick's point. I, I do think educational disadvantage is a, is a very important issue. Um, and I do think when it comes to our children, we need to find budgets uh, and make sure that our, our schools are, are up to scratch and that we deal with educational disadvantage. But I think on this one, universality is, is really important because we know the other side of it is it's very hard sometimes to find those children. Mm. There are lots of children when we started looking at family homelessness who were in homelessness in school and the teachers don't know, the schools mm. don't know, the children don't want, to, don't want it known. So uh, the level of protection that you're offered, because not all of the three and a half thousand children who are in homelessness are going to day school, far from it. And Claire, could I just make the point that some families are struggling other than financially, they might have health issues in the family, mental health issues. So this is taking the burden off families, even from a time point of view of preparing the meal. And I think the social skills that children learn uh, when they're having a meal with their peers. And I even find, you know, my own children in, in a creche, they'll eat something uh, if all their pals in the creche are eating they won't it, eat it. And they home. won't eat it at That's home. That's for sure. So we're thinking of the obesity okay. crisis as well. So. But on point, just briefly on the point that, that Mick made there, that if you say, you know, have this plan to, get, to, give, to give something to everyone, 
um, it will, in essence, but naturally, I suppose, delay. Social Justice Ireland were, were making the point today. It will delay what's being given, you know, across the board to people, you know, who are very at the very thin end of the wedge who really do uh, need it desperately. There, there is that argument being made and made strongly from you know, some groups for, for, from people and, and you know, from I take mar those marginalised points. backgrounds. I take those points, but uh, all studies have shown if you target children at a, at, a, at a very young age and target disadvantage and give them a good head start, it actually benefits them later in life. And uh, Finland and Sweden are great examples of that. OK, and Ashling, I take it that you would agree on that, judging from what you, you had said before, um, if you're still with us, about the universality um, and not necessarily strictly targeting those who may not get that hot meal at home if they weren't to get it at school. Yeah, very much like iterating what the panel said there. It is so hard to find food poverty and to know where it is. And, you know, there's pockets of it everywhere. So I think to be able to provide that hot meal for everybody and give everybody that, you know, building them up from the start of the day, feeding them well, the nutrition, and in terms of even just the equality of it all, it's, yeah, it's essential. OK, all right. Um, thank you, Ashing, um, for joining us on that conversation. I want to move now and talk about what's um, coming down the line. It's been talked about, you know, for the last few weeks, but the eviction ban being lifted this weekend, Wayne Stanley, um, and Simon has released its own report on, on what the lie of the land is, what it's like on the ground right now when it comes to seeking um, a rental property, um, if you are to be you know, made evicted if you are facing that prospect. And, and what is it like for people right now? So uh, the report today is, we, we brought out today is our lockdown of the market report. It's, we produced that on a quarterly basis and we've been, uh, I think this is the eighth year. Uh, and the findings today was the, what we look at is the number of properties available to people within the, the housing assistance payment rates. Uh, and what we found this time across the 16 areas over three days, we looked, uh, there were 29 properties available. 21 of those Is in Dublin. Is that 29, uh, Wayne, uh, nationwide? Uh, across the 16 areas, which is most of the country, but it, it, most of the urban areas. Um, and it's, uh, sorry, it's 29 properties, 21 of them in Dublin uh, and eight outside of Dublin. And they're within, that, they're only available if the local authorities in those areas use the maximum discretion available. I know that them. was put to the Taoiseach today about, you know, those 29 properties, when you think about the number of people that may be served with eviction notices and where that leaves them. And Leo Varadkar said that 2,000 new rental HAP-approved places um, have been made available so far this year. Is that the case? It is, and uh, thanks for raising that, because I think that's a really important point. It's part of the reason why we do these reports, is trying to understand what's happening uh, in the housing system. And those 2,000 uh, new HAP properties that have come online uh, would suggest that there was an increase in the, in the total number of HAPs. There, ha there has actually been a reduction. Uh, we had, at the, at the, on the 1st of January of this year, we had 59,258 uh, HAP uh, households accommodated using a HAP payment. As of the 27th of March, we have 58,914. That's a fall of 344. Okay. What, what we see in the front line is people who are getting HAP are people who are already in accommodation and they're struggling to pay their rent. They go to the local authority, they have an entitlement and they're, they're able to get on the HAP rate. Or they're on rent supplement and transferred to HAP. But even in those circumstances, uh, I had a case just uh, this week uh, one of our uh, frontline support workers was working with someone who was paying their rent to the local authority, 
getting a half payment and then having to top up to the landlord an additional 300 euros a month out of their social welfare payment. Right. So that's what, and, and that person wouldn't be captured, their property wouldn't have been captured in our survey. And that's what's Because it's so far outside of the rates. And Mick, I'm very conscious um, around the conversation we had and a really good news announcement really for government today around hot, hot school meals for every child in the country. Um, do you think there's anything in the timing of that this week, given... Um, you know, the government's lifting of the eviction ban coming this weekend and all the, the, the bad publicity that has come with that, both from within the doll and outside. Are you, are you suggesting, Claire, the government could be cynical about these things? Am I suggesting? <laughs> I'm asking you. What do you think, Mick? I think it's very likely. Um, I, 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 I'll I just ask think this worry, has been so... <laughs> this has been so badly handled. I mean, all parties would appear to agree, all parties who have some aspiration to govern or whatever would appear to agree, that this eviction ban has to be lifted at some stage. But what I still cannot fathom is the manner in which this has been done. Right up until April or March the 6th when it was announced, any vibes coming out of government suggested they were going to extend it. And then bang, suddenly that's all changed. I cannot for the life of me see why either they could not have last January begin, begun preparations for lifting this ban and put all the mitigating factors in place. Or equally, why not do that now and have extended the ban until the very minimum, the end of June? Yeah. Something like that. I just can't understand why that wasn't done. I think it's, it may well cost the government their, their, their time the parties, their time in government. I think that aspect of it is just beyond me. I think it is probably the biggest blunder this government have made since they came in. Uh, speaking of blunders, can we talk about Barry Cowan's comments? Um, keeping or extending the ban is not necessarily going to solve the crisis, he said in the Dáil yesterday. It's like making sweets free for children. It's fine for a little while, but ultimately detrimental to the greater need. What do you make of that, Lorraine, as some uh, fellow party member um, of Barry Cowan coming out with comments at a time like this? Well, Barry himself has apologised for he that. Apologised. He, he Well, he has, actually. Oh, yeah, he yeah, said well. it was clumsy. He didn't mean to offend anybody. There was a number of different analogies he could have used. He was trying to make the point that... Um, that by extending the evictions ban, and in his eyes, it would have actually been a, a more difficult situation in a couple of well, months' now, time. Well, he said it wasn't his intention to offend, but to focus minds on the available solutions. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if he was using poor choice of words or he said anything um, of, of that type. Um, but to ask you about this, and, you know, the government has been accused of being cold, of being heartless, of being out of touch on that. And it's really riling up the coalition to hear all this. We've seen the scenes in the doll when this is put to them um, about the impact this could potentially have. And then Barry Cowan comes out with something like this. Doesn't help, does it? Look, I, I think it's wrong to focus on that. I think we need to be talking about but the people, language, that, the does, people yeah, that, that... OK, I'll ask Wayne. Does Wayne, does language matter here? Um, it, I think it, to be to acknowledge that uh, Barry Cowan did say that he, you know, he, he, he was sorry if he offended anyone. Mm. I have to say I was offended. Uh, I have to say I was offended for the people who are engaging with the Simon communities across Ireland and are suffering the trauma of having to cross the threshold uh, of a homeless service of people who are contacting our services now because they know the moratorium is mm. being lifted. Uh, so, but I think Lorraine is actually right. We sh we actually need to not. To ensure that we don't get distracted by this mm -hmm. and that we actually focus on the solutions. 
the solutions now is actually for the, for the government to uh, take a U-turn, bring back in the moratorium and do exactly as Mick said. We need to see the mitigating circumstances developed. The government has pulled away the safety net without having uh, ramped up the some of the good ideas okay, well, they have around mitigation. Well, let's focus on that and move away um, from those comments that were made uh, by Barry Cowan, which did uh, offend so many, I think. Um, uh, but to, to ask you about that, Lorraine, about you know pulling away the safety net from people and where that's going to leave people this weekend. I know, that, you know, I'm speaking to people in my own constituency. I know there is a lot of people that are very fearful at the moment. And I, I read the Simon Communities report there and it is very, very stark. But HAP properties are being made available, 160 a week. Uh, new HAP tenancies are being created. Uh, that's not enough. And we all know with supply is the issue. We're trying to catch up on 10 years of undersupply. And in relation to the social housing, and that's the solution. HAP should never have been a solution for people on the housing list. But in relation to well, the it's social... Been, well, it's it, been it a has solution been, for many it years has been, because, but, but Claire, because can I just, the government has done nothing about it. Yeah, we have done something about it since we came into government. The 2022, if I could just finish this point, um, figures are being compiled at the moment. And it looks like, uh, we haven't the official figure yet, but it looks like that we will have a record number of social housing uh, being created in okay. this country. And that's comparable to the 1970s. All right. Uh, social housing, although there was criticism, of course, last year that it didn't reach the targets that you wanted to reach. Mm. But right now, I suppose the issue as well is the rental situation, isn't it, Val? Um, you know, where... Yeah, it is. And I mean, what where, Barry where, Council where do, where do we go from this? It. It's an appalling situation. We have a lot of people who are going to be very, very frightened tomorrow, who are very frightened at the moment. And it's not just young people. We've got very elderly people as well who are renting their homes. Now, tomorrow, the monthly homeless figures will be out tomorrow afternoon. And it's going to be very interesting to see what's there. But I think in a couple of months' time, it's going to be far worse because these people are going to be evicted. Of course, we should have kept the eviction ban. Not forever, but until we needed it. I mean, this is actually the biggest crisis that the people in this country are going have gone through in many years because they're in danger of losing the roofs over their heads. They're planning to sleep in cars, couch surf, move in with relatives, the overcrowded homes. It is an appalling crisis. And I think the government is taking it very lightly indeed. I mean, when somebody like Barry Cowan can equate it with a bunch of kids eating sweets, it just shows the attitude of the government. They're just not taking this seriously enough. Mm. All right. Um, we'll have to see, I suppose, will, will the language change and, and will the action follow through in, in the coming weeks on this, really, Lorraine? But I'm just briefly to point to what Mick was saying about this being a major blunder for government and potentially a turning point. Is, is, there, is there a fear somewhere or is there a discussion that, look, you need to, you really need to get this right now with the measures that you're putting in place now? Well, it's something that myself and my colleagues in the parliamentary party, the backbenchers, have been calling for, particularly this tenant in situ scheme, the expansion of that, and that has come from the Fianna Fáil backbenchers. We're trying to focus on the solutions and we've been driving that within the parliamentary party. We'll have to leave it there that's all we have time for. And my thanks to Lorraine and to Wayne uh, for joining us. The rest of the panel will be staying on with us after the break. The latest on the Women of Honour report and details of Biden's visit uh, are announced. See you then. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Confidence in the Chief of Staff, Sean Clancy, but said that... Everyone was aware to some degree of allegations of bullying and harassment. And yesterday, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy said he was unaware of cases during his career. I, I think it, it would be true to say that anyone who's been following this issue or issues in the Defence Forces over the past 20 years uh, would have been aware um, that there were allegations and cases of uh, harassment and bullying, uh, including some of a sexual nature, um, but they haven't been dealt with um, properly. Um, the response so far has failed, and that's the truth, and we all need to face up to that and, uh, and change things. Uh, that was Leo Vradker there talking about um, this report, the, the, the report in the, of the Independent Review Group chaired by retired judge uh, Bruno Hanlon that was looking into allegations of uh, abuse in the defence forces. Sean Defoe, um, I think it was the response, really, of, of the chief of staff there of the defence forces to this that has caused this kind of questioning around how did somebody at the very top of this organisation, of this state body, not know what was going on for so long. Yeah, and someone who has been in the organisation for 40 years, that was, you know, more surprising. I suppose it, it is somewhat understandable in that he's only come to the top job in the last year or so, that the full scale of it, he mightn't have known in the last year. And perhaps he, you know, sort of misspoke yesterday and that's what he meant to say, that the full scale of it really only has become apparent in the last 12 months. But as the, you know, the teacher completely contradicted him today and said that when he was Minister for Defence, he mightn't have been aware of individual cases that were highlighted in the report this week, but he was aware of the overall allegations the sort of culture within the defence forces. I mean, Tom Clonan has been talking about it for for twenty years. Well, the now. question is there of the Taoiseach as well, and he was Minister for Defence at one point. Was well, if you kind of knew about it, why why has it taken this long yeah. to get this report, to get these stories out there? Mm. Very shocking stories at that. I think people. Mm. Um, have been reeling from the detail uh, around this. One of the worst reports I have ever read in terms of the content, you know, and that there have been a lot down throughout the years. And I think that was the impression I was getting off of cabinet ministers as well. This week, the cabinet meeting ran very late, largely because this issue was being talked about and this issue was incredibly shocking for members of the cabinet who have seen quite a lot in their very long careers and have seen shocking reports across the desk. When you see instances of you know, female members of the Defence Force have been told to put two locks on their doors because someone may come in, their drinks being spiked on, you know, not company nights out, but nights out with other members of the Defence Forces and that overall culture. I mean, the quote that's been doing the round all weeks, women are barely tolerated. Mm. It's something that is, in any other organisation, if it was any of our organisations, things would be shut down, people would be fired. And now that's the question that particularly TDs are asking. Uh, the, the other big issue, of course, is um, it goes right up to present day. Yep. And yeah. with what happens now, the question is, who's, who is the right person 
what's the right way of overhauling this culture? Where do you begin? Well, and you... who should try and implement that change? Well, I don't think you can begin it internally, Claire. I mean, I, I can understand on one level what Sean Clancy is saying, because these closed organisations, culturally, there are people within it who do not engage in that sort of behaviour. And for example, I'm sure Mr Clancy didn't, but the point being, they can focus on their career, they can keep a tunnel vision, some of this stuff is going on around the periphery, and people just don't tune into it. And I have seen this in other closed organisations, and that is precisely what happens. Nothing as bad as has been going on here. But, and then the only way it came out was those brave women finally felt strong enough to come forward about it. And that I, I can see exactly how that culture existed because it, it exists in other similar organisations. You will not change it but to anybody who has been in there since because I don't think that's possible. You will have to have somebody externally to have a major overhaul in that respect. Yeah, and that's something that we are hearing and we did hear um, from Leo Radker today saying... You know, I think that uh, Sean Clancy is someone who can lead the change, Val, but yeah. he's going to need a lot of help from others to do so. And the Defence Forces simply can't fix this problem on no, their own. They certainly can't. And so I who mean, does it? I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're setting up an independent body to look at it. But you've got to remember, there is a report that was given to ministers on Tuesday dating back to 2002, which is an awfully long time. And also the fact that they say that um, most female Defence Force members, um, you know, have experienced some type of incident, most of it when they're abroad. So, you know, it's very hard to know who can deal with this because it's been going on a long time. It's been known about for a very long time. And yet nobody has dealt with it. So where do we go to next? Yeah. Where do we get the, the help we need? And the question, uh, the question is as well, are positions tenable after a report of this magnitude um, with the level of abuse that we have, we have read from it. Um, politically, are questions being asked about um, whether you know, positions at the very top of the organisation are tenable? Uh, definitely, there were statements in the Dáil this afternoon and a number of TDs, Pater Tobin among them, saying he doesn't believe the positions of a number of people in the senior staff of the Defence Forces, not only Sean Clancy, are untenable. Catherine Connolly as well, the independent TD from Galway, very strong in her contribution, saying that what Sean Clancy said about not having a clue just isn't tenable, despite everything that, that Mick has said, that you still pick things up within an organisation. If you want closed organisation. Yeah. I suppose people can put but the head down, an, put I'm the blinkers on. A, a, no, I, a mentality I, I am not disagreeing with you. people adopt within, within, in scenarios yeah. like that. And it can, that. But if you are climbing the ranks of an organisation like that and getting to the senior positions, ultimately to the top that Sean Clancy has, you can't have that closed mind view, certainly if you, you want to change the organisation. Sean, but I, I'll tell you this much. Anybody in that scenario, and again, what, how they regard things, in my opinion, is basically if they were to address any of this, the upheaval that would be required, mm. those who would be discommoded are so many, they just can't face it. And that is precisely why I cannot see a scenario whereby anybody who's in there from the very top would be in a position to address this. The other thing is there, there's a, a statutory inquiry due. Detail is going to come out there about specific allegations and who went to whom and who knew about what at a particular time, according to people who, who, who were affected by it. And there's, it's inevitable. There's a lot of stuff that's going to come out and there's a lot of... But isn't it important that most of those at the top are actually men? I mean, very oh, few women thing. get up there. Not so, you know... Well, well, women, as we heard, were barely tolerated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, 
you know, what's going to happen? They're not going to hold an inquiry among themselves and say, look, no. heads are going to roll here, okay. guys. No. I mean, this is okay. still, as Varadka said today, it is still ongoing. This is not historic. OK, I want to just move on to some breaking news that is actually reaching us tonight and uh, coming from the US. A grand jury has voted to indict Donald Trump in New York. While the precise charges are not yet known, he will be the first former president to face criminal charges. Uh, so that's breaking news reaching us from um, the US tonight. We do have a current president, of course, who's uh, due to arrive here. We've got details around this, Sean, now. Uh, that's Joe Biden's visit, confirmed for the 11th of April. Um, he's due to fly into Belfast, uh, potentially address dormant. We, mm. we don't really know um, about that yet, despite the fact, of course, that it's not um, sitting, but there's obviously something symbolic there. And then to come down to Dublin for a few days, of course, going to see family uh, and relatives in, in Louth and Mayo um, along the way. Interesting, the number of people who will be travelling with them. I mean, this is going to be a massive operation, isn't it's, it? It's going to be absolutely huge. And the details, as we reported on News Talk on Monday, yeah, the 12th to the 15th is going to be in the country. The plan is Louth, Dublin and Mayo. And there will be hundreds of people. They bring... The, the whole kit and caboodle comes over, you know, Marine One, the big massive helicopter you see on the news. That's the figure the, you the, put the, at the 800 Could be personnel. as high as 800 in the, in the travelling delegation is what I've been told behind the scenes. And look, he, he's, this is going to be a huge event. It's not going to probably be to the level of Barack Obama shutting down College Green, but there is going to be a large public address, possibly in the west of Ireland. Uh, he's going to be largely staying in Dublin, I understand, because they simply can't get enough hotels in Mayo to accommodate the full team to travel over there for an That's overnight. That's the first thing I think we were but, thinking when we heard 800 people coming <laughs> And where are where are they going to stay for but this? It's time? interesting you say on the family the, the family element of it. He is going to go absolutely massive on that. And I was in the White House a couple of weeks ago for the the St Patrick's Day trip, and the guest of honour, despite everybody else in the room, everyone famous, was undoubtedly Rob Carney, who had better seats at it than Nancy Pelosi, than Joe Kennedy, than anyone else in the, the room. The fifth cousin. The fifth cousin. The fifth cousin. Isn't it great? Uh, it's great to catch up with family uh, on an occasion like that. But Val, you know, he is likely. We're hearing if he's going to make an address. We're not going to get a sort of, you know, Obama-style address in College Green, but it could be something out west, something maybe yeah. smaller. In I Bell think you're right. I think it's going to be west. And also there's a rumour going around today that Hozier is going to have a concert in Mayo for him while he's here. So maybe there's something being built up around that. I think it's very clever of him as well because he's doing the sort of returning to the old homestead and the beautiful pictures. And that's going to go down so well in America. Mm. I mean, what it's going to do for the tourism industry here, I mean, we depend an awful lot on the American dollar and that is going to be a fantastic and it, element it of is, it. Uh, it is fantastic PR for him. There's no two ways Huge. about it. And I'm sure we'll, our government will make something of it as well. There's but no the, doubt the about that. The big question is where is he getting his petrol station? Where is his Barack Obama Plaza going to oh, be? Oh, yeah. On the way to be fair to be fair to him, it is he. He does feel it like it's it's beyond yeah. being a vote getter or anything like that, and 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 that is diluted over the years anyway in terms of Irish America. But he he, well, he is... likes to get a few digs in, doesn't he, at the British and that like he no, does yeah, like it's, it's to kind use. Of he likes stuff. to play it's, it up. It's Irish American stuff, that kind of you know, which isn't really Irish anymore. But he 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 does feel it himself, and I think he genuinely the notion he's been back in other times, but the notion of coming as president, sure, it'll be like a kind of a homecoming sort of thing, and right. you know. OK, but it's actually interesting enough it's going to be an official visit rather than a state visit which drops a lot of protocols and probably expenses around that as well. Mm. Um, Sean, uh, briefly I want to touch on Kelly Harrington and what's been a very uh, probably bad week for her really. Um, many surprised at the questions that were put to her as put to her on News Talk by um, Shane Hannan, um, your colleague of off, the, uh, um, off the Ball um, 
and that she wasn't in the slightest bit prepared for that question about a now-deleted tweet mm. that she made um, in reference to immigrants and her own, uh, her own area of the inner city. Um, how do you think that was all handled on her side and the fallout from it? Well, I think it probably handled quite badly, but the, I found it a difficult one because the two people I respect hugely, uh, Kelly Harrington, obviously you have to respect her as a gold uh, medal winning Olympian for Ireland, what she's done for her community and who she's represented. She's been you know, a fantastic light for Ireland and Shane Hannan, having worked with him for a number of years, is one of the best journalists I've ever worked with, a man of incredible integrity and someone who is about as far as removed from a gotcha journalist as you could have. And then they sort of met in this different clash. I think she probably wasn't expecting the question. You could see that in the way that she reacted to it. And one lines she said is look I'm not I'm not a politician I'd go and do a degree in politics if I was that arguably the likes of Kelly Harrington and our big sports stars are more important and more influential than our politicians particularly for young people and young women in Ireland so what they say does count I think she handled the question badly but in her statement did try to move on from it and say look these aren't my views yeah, she did issue a statement after um, after that lengthy interview in which she, she chose not to answer the question and seek to move on from it. Um, we're going to move on from it now. We're going to leave it there, but we're uh, going to have lots more after the break when uh, we discuss the open letter calling for the cease of all AI development. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Well, we just want to bring you more on that uh, breaking news we're hearing tonight that a grand jury has voted to indict Donald Trump in New York. We suspected this may have been coming, um, Mick, but uh, it's really unprecedented, as we said. Never before have we seen um, a, a US, a former US president being criminally charged. Yeah, and it's, it's related to this hush money he paid to um, Stormy Daniels, real name Stephanie Clifford. I always knew that Clifford would make it on the Globe's page <laughs> myself. Um, I, I would, I'd be cautious about it because, you know, the, the, the nature of it, this was hush money that they're, they're categorising, I think, mm. as an ele election contribution because it was paid during the campaign. And I wouldn't say it's a clear-cut case and in terms of the political ramifications, I would just be cautious about there are other things coming down the line. I think that there are a lot more clear cut if they want to go after Trump. But if, you, if there's something that could rile up a base and suggest that he's being in some way victimised, which of course he's not, but purely that they would have any kind of a basis to attempt to do that, this could be it. So I, I'd be a small bit cautious about it. About how it's what they're going after turned. him for, as opposed to the likes of the, the vote tampering allegations he had and stuff that's really solid, that they're going after him for this particular one. I just wonder whether it's, it's, um, it's an advisable course of action. Um, I suppose the impact of all of that on his support base and whether they will really grow to, to rally around him yeah. on, on foot of that, yeah. Because there is this separate, of course, uh, you know, uh, other, you know, charges being looked at, everything around his uh, documents, Mar-a-Lago, all, all sorts of other allegations surrounding him that could really scupper any chances of of a run He's for the not, White House again. not short of allegations against him anyway, certainly to go after, but I think there it does smack a small bit of a sense of panic as well because, of course, were he to get back into the White House, he would mm. be immune from the prosecution for a lot of these things, and that is a big fear on behalf of the Democrats. Um, it, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what, what it plays out. I feel like Mick, Mick might have the finger on the pulse there that it might actually fire up his base and get him over yeah. the primaries because, of course, it isn't even guaranteed that he would be the Republican candidate with the win behind Ron DeSantis. Yeah, and that support hasn't uh, gone away, um, you know, of course, you know, the Republicans were wondering, well, where, where is that support going to go? But mm. clearly it hasn't moved away um, from Donald Trump in that time. Um, well, we're going to talk now about uh, a photo of Pope Francis 
looking rather dapper in a white puffer jacket, which set the internet alight this week. Now, while the image came to the attention of most people as it seemed to be a drastic departure from the usual papal regalia, I don't know, I'd question that. I can see him sort of wearing that. Uh, it was all the more shocking was that uh, this image was generated by artificial intelligence entirely. That is a computer-generated deep fake. Uh, so how do we tell the difference between what's real and what's fake? Val, when you saw this image, when you saw the picture, what did you think? Pope in a coat? Pope in a coat, but I thought it was a very nice papal coat. <laughs> um, I mean, but I actually don't get... I mean, this guy um, who created it, Pablo Xavier, or Xavier, he's a 31-year-old construction worker from Chicago. And he created the coat. He said he never expected it to go viral, didn't know why it did. And I don't know why it did either, because you could do just the same job with Photoshop. And Photoshop would be actually better, because apparently this well, system... Well, it is Photoshop, but you're kind of prompting commands in and well, it exactly. creates, but creates this The hands aren't you. as good, you see. Okay. I thought he was going skateboarding. Uh, he looks like he's going to go skateboarding in that gear. That, 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 that's what I thought. From that he, does, he does. Well, like, you know, he's upping the style stakes there. But I think what was actually so shocking to people was with all of this technology, Sean, like that's actually quite a believable, a believable image and how well done, in fact, it was. Now, we have this, you know, push from all the, the likes of Elon Musk. Actually, there's a thousand of them, including uh, Steve Wozniak, the Apple co former Apple co-founder, yeah. who's really worried about AI, AI rather, um, and they want to see it paused. They want to see advancement of artificial intelligence paused. What are they so worried about? What do they know that we don't? Well, you can kind of see why I didn't look at that twice. I thought that was, yeah, that's OK. The Pope was wearing a strange coat. It's Pope chic, you know, and he's probably wearing some high top uh, Nike runners, pure white as well with it. So that's, that's kind of what went through my head. But these things are so JD. realistic now. <laughs> yeah, JD. But you can see as well, the one that always gets me, particularly working in radio, there is now uh, AI that can regenerate people's voices. And there are, you know, there are old clips or, or not old clips, they're now new clips of the likes of Steve Jobs that they have recreated using audio tracks of his voice. So it sounds exactly like the person. And this is the route we're going down with the likes of ChatGPT now that they are so powerful. What the people who are really in the know on this and some of the, the tech giants are just worried about where it goes down. You're almost descending into science fiction even talking about it, that these things become intelligent in their own right, that they maybe take over some of the jobs and some of the rights that we have. Where does that stop? Yeah. And I think the... the worry they were expressing in that letter is there's not really any regulation on this. There's sort of a race to outdo each other each time. And where does that go without a bit of a check on it? OK, um, we can't leave the programme without talking about Paul O'Grady, um, who sadly passed away this week at the relatively young age of 67, Mick. Um, he was larger than life in every, in every way and the alter ego, Lily Savage as yeah. well. well. He was so popular, wasn't he, was. with the audience because he was such a funny guy. He was a funny well, guy and he, he came across... He was very political. He was very, he came across a very warm guy, to be fair, you know, and uh, I'm old enough to remember Lily Savage, who was funny and, and of its time, definitely. Mm -hmm. But Paul O'Grady himself, subsequently, I just thought he was one of those TV personalities that you couldn't help warming to. Yeah, and he wasn't afraid to call it out. There was a clip that, he, you know, he lambasted the Tories during those austerity cuts of, um, you know, more than a decade ago. And he wasn't afraid to do that. And the audience lapped it up. It's always that fine balance, isn't it, with the kind of 
comedy and politics and getting the, the satire right, but he, he got a bang on the nose every time. And as you say, that warmth that came out of him, even the interactions, all the people online sharing the different interactions and videos they had within that, down through the years, and he kept that right until the end. It's just such a shame, 67 years old, dogs. so young. He liked dogs. I mean, everybody that show was so dogs. On, on this channel. <laughs> um, we're going to leave it there. Uh, that's it from us. My thanks to Sean, to Mick, to Valerie, all our guests tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. Uh, tonight, BMTV, uh, that's the tag there. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.